I want to pray once again. Let's bow our heads for a moment. Father, I thank you as we've been hearing this morning that your word is living, it's powerful, it is sharper than any two-edged sword. Your word is like a fire and like a hammer. And you're watching over your word to perform it. And God, we humble ourselves in your presence now. We pray, Almighty God, that you would dig open our ears, open our eyes, circumcise our hearts, that we might receive the engrafted word and be saved and be healed and be transformed. Lord, I thank you for each and every one that you've brought here. Lord, we are trusting in your Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, to work deeply in each and every one of our hearts and lives today. We commit this time now into your hands. Let the name of Jesus and only his name be exalted and lifted up here. We surrender. We open our eyes, our ears, our hearts to you now, Holy Spirit. Have your way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. I have a title for my message today. It's called Vital Signs. Vital Signs. And when you visit a doctor, or if perchance you have to go to a clinic or the emergency room or the hospital, the first thing they do is check your vital signs. And they want to find out if you're healthy, if you're well, if you're alive. And there are certain things they have to check right away to see if you're alive. And if your doctor or the attending physician at the ER or wherever we're speaking, if that doctor really cares for you, he will be truthful to you about your condition. Is that right? How many of you want a doctor that you think loves you so much that he's not going to hurt your feelings and tell you what he just found out in his tests or whatever? I don't want a doctor lying to me. And I have a friendly relationship with my physician, but when I go to him, he's not my friend. He's my doctor. And when he looks at the charts and he looks at the vital signs, he sits me down and he says, this is what we got. And so, I have a message today that's very strong. I make no apologies for it. And I've checked my own heart to make sure I'm not delivering this in any kind of anger or wanting to offend anyone. And I can tell you before Almighty God, I bring this message to you in love. But we are in a time and a season where we must, we must take the things of God seriously. We cannot play around. And I, again, I, I, I realize some of the things I'm going to be sharing today might be taken as an offense. That's not my intention. Some of you might say, boy, this is really too hard for us. I don't know. I'm just delivering to you the message that God gave to me. I'm a messenger, that's all. And when Dr. Jesus examines you, 
I think you want him to be truthful, don't you? And if you're familiar with Revelation chapters 2 and 3, it's an eye-opener the first time you read those two chapters because you begin to understand how Jesus views his church and how he speaks to his church. And I have often mentioned this in different churches where I minister. Most preachers would be thrown out on their ear to the curb if they spoke to a church the way Jesus did in Revelation 2 and 3. Such strong words he used there. I'll vomit you out of my mouth. I'll kill some of you. Those are words that Jesus uses when he speaks to those churches. And if you're not used to that kind of a Jesus, maybe we need to refresh ourselves in the Word of God. And I want, just to give you an example... We're going to read two of those seven messages today. One of them is not really my message, but the second one is the message God gave me for this church. The first one is just to give you an idea, and if you want to do some homework, go home and read Revelation 2 and 3, and read it nonstop so that you get a feeling for how Jesus looks at each church and how he speaks to the situations in each one of those seven churches. The first one I'm reading is the church in Thyatira. And this begins in Revelation 2, and I'm going to read, without any comment, verses 18 to 29. Again, this is not my message. I just want you to get a feeling for how these messages are worded. Revelation 2.18 to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways." I will strike her children dead, then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." Now, I think we could all agree, that's a pretty strong message. 
That would not bring a lot of claps and cheers in most church audiences. I can see some people squirming if this message were delivered. Just to highlight one or two things. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling, so I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will strike her children dead. That is strong, my friends. And the real message comes after that. Then all the churches... What's all mean? Are we a church? Then we're included here. Then all the churches will know something. You and I better know this. All the churches will know that I am He who searches hearts and minds and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now, I could preach on this, but I won't. I want to move on to the very next message in Revelation. This is starting in chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. And this past Monday, Pastor Tom, Pastor Quasey and I were having a time of prayer together, and literally in a flash, the Lord gave me this whole message. And this is the portion of Scripture that is really the heart and soul of what I want to try to share with you today. Revelation 3, from 1 to 6. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So I don't know if you can visualize this, but here's Dr. Jesus, the physician, He's checking the pulse. He's checking the vital signs on each one of these churches. And he's not trying to schmooze them with sweet talk. He's telling them what he has found in his diagnosis. And in both of the messages I read, he starts off telling them, I know about some good things. I know about your deeds. I know about your faith. I know about your perseverance. He starts off very positive with the things that they were doing right, with the good things that he saw. Sometimes we don't know, but the Lord sees everything. The Bible says the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the good and the evil. And you find that in all seven of these messages. Isn't it amazing how many people still think somehow they can pull the wool over God's eyes? 
How ridiculous. His eyes, we read, are like blazing fire. He can see in total darkness. He doesn't need to turn on a lamp because his eyes are fire. He can see everything in your life. Now, if you're, if you're really serving God with your whole heart, mind, and soul, and you're walking in integrity and truth, and you're really pressing into God, that's good news. I want the Lord to see my life. I want the Lord to know what I'm doing. Maybe nobody else sees you. Maybe nobody else pats you on the back. Doesn't matter. He sees you. He knows. He knows the hours you spend in prayer. He knows the days and the weeks you spend fasting. He sees your tears. He collects them in bottles and they're stored up in heaven. He sees. He knows. But He also, if He sees some bad numbers... I hope you've never heard your doctor tell you that, but I have. I, I got some some strange numbers here in this blood test or whatever. Huh. I don't like to hear bad numbers. I like to hear all your numbers are good. But he found some bad numbers here. Matter of fact, when he checked for vital signs, he said, some of you are dead. And others are about to die. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete. Something was lacking in this church. And he warns them very, very strongly. And I don't have time to go into a lot of detail on this. But if you understand the scriptures, you'll understand what he tells them in verses 2 and 3. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. I've taught on this here, and I'm not going to do it this morning. Jesus coming like a thief is referring to being left behind in the tribulation. It's not a good thing. Some Christian movies have been made about Jesus coming like a thief. You even hear some of the Christian singers, you know, singing about, oh, he's coming like a thief in the night. Man, I don't want him coming like a thief. Read 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 and you'll find out it's not a good thing when he refers to coming like a thief. And you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet, and then he refers to a few people that were different. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled, not defiled their garments. That's a strong warning. If you don't hear me, he says, and repent, the tribulation awaits you. If you're faithful, if you're obeying, if you're repenting whenever the Spirit of God touches your heart about something, then you walk with me. Now, I looked this up online. There's some overlap, but I think basically there are four or five vital signs that are normally checked when you go to see a doctor or you go to the hospital. Uh, first thing they might do is take your temperature. Then they're certainly going to take your blood pressure and check your pulse. They might, if it's a regular doctor's visit or a physical, they might weigh you 
And they might even check your breathing to make sure you're, you're inhaling and exhaling. I could actually preach about what each one of those might rec- re- uh, represent spiritually, but I'm not going to do that. Uh, Jesus, in another one of the messages to the churches, for instance, the last one, the church in Laodicea, he took their temperature and he said, you're lukewarm. I'd rather you be hot or cold, but if you stay lukewarm, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth, he told them. This is Jesus talking to a church. And I've preached on this and taught this in many, many churches, and it never fails. Somebody will come up afterwards and say, Pastor, Jesus never talks to me like that. He always tells me how much he loves me and how much he forgives me and da-da-da-da-da. And I say, well, you must have a different Jesus than this one. That's scary. Because the Bible says there are other Jesuses. There are other Gospels being preached. And I want the real Jesus. Do you? I don't want some Jesus that I've invented in my own mind who looks the other way when I'm sinning. I don't want that Jesus. I want the Jesus who comes to me and says, sit down, son, i got to talk to you about some stuff. (laughs) So, after checking their vital signs, something's not right here. And so he tells them, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. You know, there's a lot in the Bible about who we think we are and who we really are. Who we claim to be and who God sees that we are. And we're gonna, we're gonna look at some verses on that a little later, but what we claim doesn't necessarily line up with who we are. I can claim to be all kinds of things. The Bible says many, many claim to have unfailing love but a faithful man who can find. (laughs) So in other words, I might be over here claiming all kinds of stuff, but when God puts me under his microscope, he says, hmm, you have a reputation of being something, but here's what you are. Interestingly, our name is New Life Church. We have a reputation, even in our name, of being alive, having new life. But maybe when the Spirit of God examines more closely, he's saying, you have a reputation, but some of you are dead, others are about to die. You better wake up and you better strengthen what's going on in your life. You know, can, are we going to play church today or can I speak to you from my heart? Sadly, some of the people that need to hear this message aren't even here today, which doesn't surprise me. And that's part of my message. Do you understand what I'm saying? The fact that some people aren't even here is proof of the fact that there are things that are dead or dying in this church. And there are some who are even here today that have consistently demonstrated a lack of passion, a lack of desire for prayer and the Word of God. I am so tired of me or my wife or Pastor Quasey or somebody else having to get up here and lecture us about coming to prayer and coming to Bible study. I'm tired of it. If you still have no hunger, no passion, no desire to run to the prayer meeting, to run to the Bible study every single week, you better check your heart. 
maybe there's something wrong with your blood pressure or your pulse. Because since the day I was born again, I cannot stop praying and reading the Word of God. I love the Word of God. I love prayer. I love worship. I love to be with the people of God. Nobody has ever had to come and say, Wow, we've missed you these last three weeks, Wayne. Where have you been? You haven't been coming to prayer. You haven't been coming to Bible study. Friends, there's something wrong if somebody needs to keep telling you, Come to prayer. Come to the church service on Sunday, or come to uh, whatever event it is that we're doing. It's going to get real quiet now, I know that. We have made it so easy for everyone in this church to participate weekly in our Bible studies. I'm not the greatest Bible teacher. I don't even pretend to be. But I think we have a pretty solid foundation in the Word of God that we try to share with the listeners in our weekly Bible studies. And we have actually, thanks to technology, we have eliminated any excuse. Listen to me carefully. We've eliminated any excuse. Oh, pastor, I I can't. I can't come to the Bible study. I don't have time. I work on on Wednesdays, or I got to drive, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Got it. I understand that. You can listen Thursday morning. You can listen at midnight. You can listen to it at 4 a.m. Sunday morning. And yet, we go on with our excuses. You know why? There's something wrong with the heart. There's no passion for the Word of God. Job said, I have esteemed his words more than my necessary food. How many of you forgot to eat this week? Oh, come on. (laughs) Mommy, I'm hungry. Oh, our bellies let us know when we're hungry. But some of us will go for days and weeks without the word of God. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. Stop making excuses. Go to God and say, Lord, why don't I have a passion for your word? Why don't I have a passion for prayer? (laughs) Some of you, and you know, Pastor Tom tells this story about a preacher who preached a very hard message. And one woman came up to the preacher afterwards and says, I know you were talking about me. He says, I don't know. He says, you know, if there's a pack of dogs out there and I throw a rock, which dog is going to scream? The one that got hit. Need I say more? Some of you can spend hours on Facebook and social media. Others can spend hours in front of the TV or a video game or a a computer screen. And yet, one hour of Bible study a week. Oh, no, no, no. I don't have time, Pastor. I don't have time. No, no. Let's tell it truthfully. I don't want to. I don't have the hunger, Pastor. I don't have the desire. And then we have those that have imagined themselves to be some great apostle or great evangelist. And they don't really even know the Word of God, but they don't need to bother listening to our teachings in our Bible studies because they're so deep and so way up here. This deception, my friends. The devil is really working overtime in these last days. Blinding, deceiving, 
and then stealing and killing. He's not playing games. We play church, the devil plays for keeps. Some of us making money, our jobs, the things of this world, the latest fashions, the latest stuff of the world, it always takes precedence over the kingdom of God. Priorities are all wrong. Seek first the kingdom of God. Job second. Everything else second. But the king and his kingdom first. We read in this message to the Sardis church, apparently a lot of the folks he's addressing in the beginning are different from this second group. The few. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me. It never fails. Week in and week out, we have the same five, six, maybe seven or eight people in Bible study and in prayer. What about you? Where do you fall in that equation? Are you in the few? Or are you in the others that we never hear from, never see, don't know what you're doing? This is sad. It really does bring tears to my eyes. It's sad. I've invested 42 years of my life in doing one thing. I want to see God's church raised up. And I know he's going to raise up a glorious church. It's going to be without spot. It's going to be without wrinkle. It's going to stand boldly in the face of persecution. And my friends, get ready because persecution is coming to America. It's coming. And some of you, if you don't wake up, and if you don't really get rooted and grounded in Christ and the Word of God, you're going to be swept away. You're going to be swept away. We have others, maybe you're here today by chance, but we have others that Pastor Tom and I call part-time Christians. Part-time. They might attend one Bible study a month, one prayer meeting a month. They might come here a Sunday or two a month. But it's always, always, always at their convenience. And of course, other things of greater importance like job, football games, family picnics, beach trips take precedence. And let me tell you something. God sees all this stuff in our lives and it grieves the Holy Spirit. It grieves the Holy Spirit when we weigh in a balance. Hmm. Serve God or go to the beach? Let's go to the beach. Give my life to God or stay home and watch a football game? Ha, ah, football game. And I'm just using these examples. It may be something else. But these are things that are called idols in the Bible. It's idolatry when we put anything above God. And basically, what we end up with is what James calls a dead faith. It's a dead faith. We claim to have faith, but James says, show me by what you're doing. Show me by your works. What are you doing in your Christian life? Some others, and again, if the stone hits you and you yelp, must have been for you. Some others here have robbed God for so long in your tithes and offerings, that I don't think you feel any conviction anymore. 
Some of you here have never even given anything close to a tithe. And I don't preach tithing. I preach giving. Tithing is Old Testament for hard-hearted people who are under the law. I've been set free from the law. I can go beyond 10%. I can give hilariously, it says in 2 Corinthians. But some of you, even if the Holy Spirit tried to speak to you, you're so stingy. Oh, I can't give that much. I can't do that for the Lord. And yet we wonder why we don't prosper. We wonder why the devourer keeps coming in to our homes and devouring whatever we make at our jobs. We come home with our pockets full and they're empty by the next day. Holes in the pockets. Bible says your riches will get wings and fly away because we put the money ahead of God. We've had two marvelous opportunities recently here to give. The backpacks for the kids in Mexico and now this Operation Christmas Child. What a big sacrifice, seven bucks to send a shoebox to some poor child in Mongolia or God knows where that will never hear the gospel any other way. And we're so stingy. We're just sitting here thinking about ourselves. Except for one large offering, we were only able to collect a little over $100 for the kids in Mexico. Shame on us. Shame on us. How long will you keep robbing from God? How long will you keep making excuses? Oh, when I get a better job. Forget that. Forget that. Do you know it's a proven fact? Most of the kingdom of God throughout the earth is supported by poor people. (laughs) It's not rich people that support the kingdom of God. The rich people are out in politics. And they're the ones that are giving you all the headaches. The poor people, the ones like the widow that brought her mites to the temple. Poor people that sacrificially give. That's That's what keeps churches going. That's what keeps ministries going. So don't fool yourself into thinking, oh, when I get my big job and my big career, then I'll start giving to the Lord. It doesn't work that way. It's a step of faith. Start today. I make up my mind today. I'm going to give at least a tenth, maybe more, maybe 20% of everything God gives me. I'm giving it right back to Him. Whenever there's a project for the Mexican kids or for Operation Christmas Child or Israel or whatever it is we're given to, I'm going to give sacrificially and I want to put God to the test. He says, prove me in this if I don't open up the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing on you. I'm not preaching this today because I want your money. I don't want anybody's money. I want you to get out of the bondage that you're in and start to experience the freedom and the liberty and the blessing that God gives. These are just examples of areas where death can come into our spiritual life if we're not careful. There are some others. Maybe you're here today. Maybe you're not even here. But I could think of several who, like Hebrews 5, have been in the church for so long By now you should be teachers, 
deacons, maybe even elders. And yet you're still carnal, you're still dull of hearing, and you have to go back and be fed milk. It's sad. It's sad. Please don't just come up here Sunday after Sunday and warm a pew. If you've already made up your mind, you don't want to serve God, it's too inconvenient for you, find another place. We're looking for people that want to build, people that want to work, people that want to step up to the plate and say, give me a job, pastor. I want to do something for the Lord. I'm tired of sitting on my rear end doing nothing. And yet, some, when it's convenient, they'll come, never sign up for anything, Never want to be involved in any work or any projects that the church is doing. And they wonder now after 20, 25, 30 years in the church, why they've never grown, why they aren't really having any kind of a ministry. Well, read Hebrews 5. The writer of Hebrews says, by now you ought to be teachers. But, some others, that I know personally in this church are still bound by unforgiveness and bitterness. They have hatred for other people in their families, maybe in other churches, but there's unforgiveness, there's bitterness that's still boiling inside. My understanding of the scriptures, and somebody correct me if I'm wrong, but the one thing that salvation hinges on is you forgiving everybody else. If you don't forgive everybody and anybody, your sins are still not forgiven. And I'd like for somebody to define for me, what is your condition then? You're not saved. This is serious. This is serious. Oh, but pastor, you don't know what they did to me. I don't care. I know what they did to Jesus. And he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Oh, but I've been betrayed, Pastor. They've gotten on the radio and the television and talked bad about me. Good. Forgive them. If you want your sins forgiven. Still others are lying or living a lie. This is very serious. The Bible says, he that covers up his sin will never prosper. Be sure your sin will find you out, the Bible says. There is an individual in our congregation, I'm not going to mention names on any of these things, but for two months, the Lord has continued to speak to me. Fallen from grace and a root of bitterness springing up to defile many. I'm waiting to see if that individual will repent. I'm waiting. I believe there's been a serious moral compromise. And yet, to date, nothing. Even when confronted, became defensive. Oh, you all don't know what you're talking about. Okay, fine. We'll pray. We'll pray. If you're living any kind of a double life, you know what I'm talking about. We all know the feelings of shame, guilt. We want to hide what we're doing when it's wrong. If there's anything like that going on in your life, I plead with you in the name of Jesus. Cry out to God for repentance. 
maybe pornography, immorality, might be cheating, money cheating, could be any number of things. Drugs, oh, I don't want my parents to know what I'm doing. If you want to gamble, gamble. I'd rather get clear and get right with God today and not wait for tomorrow because I'm taking a gamble. If any of these things apply to you, maybe they don't. Praise God if you're one of the few, like the few in Sardis. And we've, we've gone down the list and all your vitals are good. Your temperature is good. Uh, you know, all your other vital signs seem to be right in order. Praise the Lord. Be encouraged. I had an experience the last time I visited my doctor for a physical. And as I say, he's been our family doctor for years. We have a very cordial friendly relationship with him. Um, by coincidence, he's Guyanese. Pastor Quasi knows who I'm talking about. And he's still a Muslim. But we talk about Jesus and the Word of God every time I go. And last time I went, they did the full physical, you know, with the stress test and you're running on the uh, treadmill and all this. And he put me on that treadmill, and they got all the electrodes attached to you, and you know, they're looking at the uh, electrocardiogram and all that. And he kept increasing the speed more and more and more. And finally, he called his partner in there. He says, look at this. And he kept increasing the speed, and I was still going. I mean, I was going for like 15, 20 minutes. And I think he was waiting to see if I was going to collapse or beg for him to turn the thing off. And I just kept going and going and going because I walk and run. And finally he called his partner in and he says, look at this guy, he's stronger than a horse. And I thought, oh. I felt real good, you know. But then he called me into his office. And he started looking at the chart. And he said, you know, Wayne, based on your height, your weight puts you in the obese category. I didn't like that word. But you know what? I thank God, because from that day on, I decided i got to lose weight, and by the grace of God, I've lost 35 pounds. He could have said, well, you know, a little bit, you could lose a few pounds here. No, you're obese. Thank you, doctor. Didn't make me feel good? No. I didn't take offense at him. I realize I gotta work on my own life. I gotta change some things that are going on. And you know, I'm very thankful today that he used a strong word like obese. Had he used, you know, you're a little bit off, you're a little bit, maybe I would have just kept on playing and become a big blimp. But his words stirred me up. I gotta change. You know, in the Gospel of John, there are two stories. We're, we're not going to have time to read them. But in John 5, you'll remember the story. There's the paralytic who was there by the pool in Bethesda. He had been there for years in that condition. And finally, Jesus heals the man. He was waiting for the angel to trouble the waters and nobody would put him in the water. So Jesus said, just get up and be healed. But Jesus wasn't done with him yet. He said, now, stop sinning or something worse is going to happen to you. 
You know, I was walking this morning, just meditating and praying over what the Lord would have me share here today. And I'm probably the most guilty of this. I always like to give these long, complicated Greek and Hebrew definitions for words, hoping that maybe we can get the full intent of the word. The word repent, for instance, uh, it's a pretty complex word. It means a change in the mind, a change in the attitude, and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And usually when we go through this long, convoluted definition, by the end nobody even knows what they're supposed to do. The Lord spoke to me very clearly today. He says, Wayne, you want to know what my definition of repentance is? I said, yes, Lord. Two words. You ready for it? Some of you might want to jot this down. Repent. It means stop sinning. That's it. Stop sinning. He spoke it to that man, and then in John 8, the woman caught in the act of adultery. They were all ready to stone her. Jesus forgave her. Oh, good, I can go back to adultery. Oh, no, 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 no. No, no, no. I'm not done with you yet. Now, young lady, stop sinning. That's repentance. Stop sinning. That's what Jesus told this church to do. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard, obey it, and repent. Let me shift gears a little bit here. In the Old and New Testaments, you find a number of passages where God comes to His people looking for fruit. Okay? Looking for fruit. And if you're a farmer or you have an orchard or a vineyard, it stands to reason after you've gone to all the trouble, all the expense to plant these trees or vines and fertilize them and dig up the soil and all that, you expect fruit. And if you come and don't find any fruit, you're very disappointed. Let's look at one in the Old Testament that you might not be very familiar with. It's found in Isaiah chapter 5. And it's going to sound a lot like some of the things we will read after that in the New Testament. Because how many of you know God doesn't change? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And in Isaiah 5, from 1 to 7, it says, I will sing for the one I love a song about his, capital H, his, Vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. And please follow me because this isn't just a lesson in agriculture or gardening. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked. What did he look for? He looked for a crop of anything, right? Grace, 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 anything will pass. No, no, no. He looked for a crop of good grapes. But it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem. Uh Uh-oh, we're not talking about gardening. 
Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. And he looked for justice but saw bloodshed, for righteousness but heard cries of distress. He's talking about his people here. Israel is the vineyard. He planted it. He fertilized it. He dug up the soil. He got rid of all the rocks. So it was good ground. And he has every reason to come now because he's been raining on it until he stopped the rain. He's been raining on it expecting a crop of good grapes. But he is so disappointed when he comes to find that it's only yielding bad fruit. He says, that's it. Destroy it. Destroy it. Now, in the New Testament, we actually find a couple of things that sound a little bit like this. Go with me now to Luke 13, a parable that Jesus gave. Luke 13, from verse 6 to 9. Okay, good. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he did what? He went to admire the leaves. It's getting nice and big. Nice leaves. Tree has a nice shape, doesn't it? Why do you plant a fig tree? To get figs. He went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, uh-oh, this has been going on for three years. For three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit. And many of the things I addressed earlier, these things have been going on for a long time. I'm not, I'm not in a bad mood because somebody missed Bible study or a prayer meeting last week. These are things I've been watching over a long period of time. And God lets things go sometimes for a period of time. It's called a space of time to repent. It doesn't mean he's looking the other way or he's okay with our lifestyle. He's giving us time to deal with these things. So this has been going on for some time. For three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and I haven't found any. Cut it down. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilize it if it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. 
I'm very concerned for this church. I go to other churches, and regularly we see people getting saved, healed, delivered of evil spirits. We feel the power of God moving. The glory of God falls. I come here, and it's like death. And I've been, I've been crying out to God, especially for the last three to four months, and asking Him to show me what are we to do here. And I'm not ready to tell you I'm at the point yet where I want to cut it down, but this is the discussion that is going on. Lord, how much longer is this going to go on where people wander into church a half an hour late, they miss three or four services in a row, no passion for the Word of God, no interest in evangelizing and winning souls, and no desire to make a sacrifice, whether it's financially or with our time, to be a part of the body. And what we end up with is the same five, six, seven people. We will take care of those five, six, or seven people. But the others that refuse to repent and continue in this condition, I have a, I have a great fear in my heart. I hope you can hear my heart today. I hope you can hear me. Mark 11. Very strange story in the life of Jesus. And it's a bit difficult to explain, but we don't need to explain it. We just need to apply it. Mark 11, starting with verse 12. Mark 11, verse 12. Okay. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Interesting. If you have eyes to see and ears to hear, Jesus is hungry today. He's hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, what did he do? What is he doing? He went to find out if it had any leaves? No, 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 no. He went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Now, there's some controversy on this. And in the Amplified Bible, it reads just the opposite. It says, in the fig tree... The fruit appears at the same time as the leaves. It's a moot question and it really doesn't involve us that much. But it goes on to say, When he came up to the tree, he found nothing but leaves, for the fig season had not yet come. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Verse 20. In the morning, the next day, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. I don't know of any other place in the Gospels where Jesus cursed anything. That's a strong word. He cursed it. Now, some people have imagined that Jesus was, you know, in a bad mood or he kind of jumped the gun on this poor tree. No, don't feel sorry for the tree. He's trying to speak to you and me. There comes a time where he expects fruit in our lives. And if he's not seeing any, he's very, very disappointed. 
as he was with this tree. I want to talk to you about something that the uh, that John the Baptist referred to in his preaching, kind of going backwards in time. But in Luke chapter 3, we read about the ministry of John the Baptist. And he talks there about something called fruits of repentance. Let me test you now. What's repentance mean? Stop sinning. Is that going to be hard to determine? <laughs> Not going to be real hard, is it? Luke 3, starting with verse 3, he, that's John the Baptist, went into all the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance. Because he's preparing the way for us to come to Jesus. There's no other way to come to Jesus but through this way of repentance. Stop sinning. A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of, of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him, every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low, the crooked road shall be made straight, and the rough way smooth. And all mankind will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, Oh, it's so nice to have you all. We want to move the camera in here and we want to keep a count of how many we baptized today so we can post it on our website. What did he say? You brood of vipers. John, come on. You're just getting a good crowd here. You don't want to scare everybody off. Be nice to these people. This is the way God's messengers speak when God puts a word in their hearts. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Verse 8, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that these stones, that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. You know, the danger is, you and I, we, we become religious without repentance. And it's like, but pastor, my, my parents are saved, or my, my dad is the pastor, or, or my mom is a deaconess, and we've been in this church for 35 years. That's not the discussion here. They were trying to use Abraham as a crutch. Oh, Abraham is our father. John says, no, that's not going to work. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Oh, Lord, have mercy. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Kind of hard to change that one any other way. My friend, you know what fruit's coming from your life. I know what fruit is coming from my life. We can try to fool God, we can't. We can try to fool everybody else, and we might be fairly successful at that. But what's scary is we actually start fooling ourselves. Self-deception is one of the scariest things in the Bible. Where I can actually think I'm something and I'm not. 
I can even be listening to a message like this one and checking it off and say, oh, I don't have any of that stuff. I'm good. I'm ready to go. Yeah, I'm great. What is the fruit coming from your life and mine? Well, they were convicted. And in verse 10, very similar to what happened on the day of Pentecost, they asked a question, what should we do then? <laughs> Notice what they did not ask. What are we supposed to believe? Where do we sign up? How do I join? No. What are we supposed to do? Obviously, God is telling me something in my life needs to change. And paraphrasing, if you read verses 11 to 14, he answers them. He basically says, stop cheating, stop being greedy, stop accusing other people falsely, and start sharing and giving things to others. But then listen to verse 17. Luke 3, 17. His winnowing fork, that's God's, His winnowing fork is in His hand to clear His threshing floor and to gather the wheat into His barn, but He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. There's a separation that God must bring in these last days. If you're paying any attention to what's happening in the world, my God, we're getting close. We are getting close. And don't think that it's any coincidence what's happening in the U.S. with all this election confusion and such a, it's such a sad state of affairs this nation has come to, along with many, many other nations. Don't think it's any coincidence. This is God's timing. There are things happening beyond your and my control, and they must happen because they've been predicted. The coming of the Lord is so very near. It's so very near. True repentance must result in fruit. And if any of the things that have been mentioned here today make you feel uncomfortable, convict you, so be it. Praise God. That's a good sign. Run to God and ask Him to grant you repentance. Second Timothy chapter 2, I want to put up verses 24 to 26. When you and I come to grips with just how fallen we are because of Adam, how bankrupt we are spiritually, you and I will realize we're not even capable of repenting unless God works in our heart. Listen to this. And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope, in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. There are many people in my life right now, I am crying out to God. My only hope for them is that God would grant them repentance. If they continue in the way that they are going, they are going to self-destruct. That's how messed up humankind is. God must intervene, and you and I must have this hope when we're praying for a lost loved one, or even someone who might visit this church from time to time that has shown no fruits of repentance or salvation. 
cry out to God that he would grant them repentance. When that happens, notice what takes place. That they will come to their senses. It's like, wow, I see. Like the prodigal son, it says, he came to his senses. Come to their senses, and here's where it gets scary. And escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. People who have not earnestly and genuinely and completely repented, the devil is still playing with them like one of these little puppets on a string. They think, oh, I'm free. I can do whatever I want. No, you can't. The devil is telling you what to do. You've been taken captive by him to do his will. The only way to really break that hold off your life is to repent. And if you can't repent, cry out to God for repentance. If you've been in church for some time, and particularly if you've already taken water baptism, and yet you really don't see these kind of changes in your life, I would be concerned. By this point, I would be concerned. Because when a person is truly saved, truly born again, they become a new creation. Old things are passed away, a few things become new, right? A little little bit at a time. What does it say? All things become new. I don't know about your experience, but when I got saved, it was radical. It was radical. And I'm not boasting, I'm just trying to explain to you the kind of an experience that takes place when you're really saved. I had long hair down on my shoulders, smoking pot every day, getting drunk on the weekends, cursed like a sailor, there were many, many foul, vile things going on in my life. The day I got saved, all of that stopped. Nobody told me, you know, Wayne, you better go to the barber shop now and get your hair cut. Wayne, you better stop cursing. Wayne, you know, that dope, if you keep smoking, it's going to mess up your mind, and you better stop getting drunk, because the Bible says it's bad. Nobody ever had to preach to me about any of that stuff. It all stopped immediately. It was a radical change. That's what salvation is. It's radical. Some of you maybe have not experienced that yet. Cry out to God for real repentance, for a real born-again experience where you become a new creation. And maybe that's why some have no real desire for the Word of God. I have shared my testimony with you. I'm not boasting about these things. I'm trying to help people understand the kind of radical change the Spirit of God brings into a person's life when He arrests them. I got saved in California, and I could not put the Bible down. A month later, I had to drive all the way across country to come back here to Washington, D.C. Don't try this. But I wrote about it in my book. I had a little pocket red New Testament. I held that thing in my left hand and my right hand on the steering wheel. I drove from California to Washington, D.C. I could not stop reading the Bible. That was long before we had Bible tapes and any any of those things. All I had was my little New Testament couldn't put the Word of God down. Now, oh, Pastor, I missed four, five, ten, or twelve Bible studies, but I'll I'll catch up eventually. I've just been busy. Yeah, I know. 
In John chapter 3, everybody knows John 3.16, right? Our favorite. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And that is the key. Life is found in Jesus. Life comes when you believe in Jesus. But there's a few things that come before that in John 3. At the beginning of the chapter, we have this meeting at night between Nicodemus and Jesus. It was kind of a secret meeting. Because he was still with the Jews and he didn't want anybody to know he was coming to talk to Jesus. And so he has this little meeting with Jesus. And in John 3, we'll pick it up at verse 3. Okay. Nicodemus had asked a question, you know, we know that you're a man of God, da-da-da-da-da. And Jesus just gets right to the point. I tell you the truth. No one. What's no one mean? You mean no one? No one can see. Say that with me. No one can see. Leave out the rest of the phrase there, no one can see unless he's born again. See what? See the kingdom of God. No one. You can sit in church for 150 years, you're never going to see anything if you haven't experienced what Jesus is talking about here, being born again. Another way of putting it, I prefer, is born of God. God's seed comes into you. Your whole nature changes from the inside out. You've been born again. This was radical for Nicodemus. How can a man be born when he is old, Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must. Uh Uh-oh. This isn't an option. You must. You must be born again. And if there's any doubt in anyone's mind hearing my voice, whether it's here today or this is being recorded, I'm going to edit it before I make it available. But if anybody is hearing my voice today, and you have doubts. Run to God. Don't come to me. Don't go to your pastor. Run to God and say, Lord, I want to be born again. I want you to be my Father. And then we come down to verse 16. I just quoted it. God so loved the world. But He doesn't stop there. Verse 17. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. That's why Jesus came to save us. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. When you're sharing the gospel with unsaved people, they might come at you and say, oh man, you're trying to condemn me today. Nope, you already are. You already are. Then in verse 19, This one isn't on all the wall plaques like John 3.16. This one isn't quite as popular in Sunday sermons. But it's all related. It's all a part of the same package. This is the verdict. 
Hmm, that sounds heavy. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Hmm, their deeds were evil. Light came, but men make choices. You see, Jesus isn't on trial today. Jesus' work is done. It's finished. It's perfect. We sang those wonderful songs earlier today. He overcame. He's wearing the victor's crown. He already pulled down everything. He destroyed everything. He conquered everything. But now, the question is, what are you and I choosing? What are we choosing to do in our lives? Apparently, many people, even when the light comes... They choose darkness because they love it. They love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light <clears throat> and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. Let me put it another way. Is there anything going on in your life that you wouldn't want other people to know about? Anything that you wouldn't want exposed? Well, be careful. Because we can actually make that a lifestyle. We start covering. We start being a hypocrite. We're one way in church, different way at home. And it actually becomes almost second nature. We start to not only tell lies, but we begin to live a lie. And here's, here's what I have been most terrified by over the years. Paul says, deceiving and then being deceived. You see, Satan is the father of lies. When you start telling lies, you think, ha, 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 I fooled my teacher, I fooled my parents, and I fooled the pastors too. None of them know what I'm really up to. But guess who's getting the last laugh? Satan. Because each time you tell a lie, each time you live a lie, he's blinding you. He's deceiving you. And I've seen people that come to a place, I guess they would be called pathological liars. We have some politicians like that. They no longer know when they're telling the truth and when they're lying. They have no compunction, and they could probably even pass a lie detector test. They're so deceived. They look right into the TV camera and say, I didn't do that, I didn't say that, and then five minutes later they play the tape. Yes, you did. Here's the tape. Well, you know, maybe it was doctored up. It's time, my friends. I plead with you, it's time. We've got to get serious. We have to get serious. New birth is radical. If you haven't experienced a radical change in your life yet, seek it. Cry out to God. And finally, I want to read to you some verses from 1 John. You know, John is often 
very affectionately referred to as the Apostle of Love. Sounds pretty good, right? Well, maybe you haven't read his epistle yet. Because man, it is hard. It's strong stuff. I'm just going to give you a sampling here. First John 1, from verse 5 to 10. First John 1. There we go. This is the message we have heard from Him and declare to you. God is light. Hmm, we just read that, didn't we? God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. And there's an expression we're going to hear John use over and over and over in this letter. If we claim something, but the reality is different. Here's the first one, verse 6. If we claim we have fellowship with Him, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Let me tell you something I've noticed without fail over the years. When darkness comes into a person's life, fellowship is broken. You can't walk in fellowship with the body of Christ and live in darkness. There's a break that takes place. And very often it results in those people leaving church and going back into their old life. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin. Man, that's where I want to be. I want to be in the light where the blood has power to keep cleansing me. Because I need cleansing. I need cleansing every day. And I don't want to be in a place where the blood of Jesus can no longer touch me, can no longer be effective in my life. Verse 8, here it is again. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. Hmm. We deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Verse 10, for the third time, if we claim we have not sinned, we make Him out to be a liar and His Word has no place in our lives. Wow. On to chapter 2. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, and he realizes we're going to have those times, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We know that we have come to Him, to know Him, if, if, We obey His commands. The man who says or who claims, Oh, I know Him, but does not do what He commands, is a liar and the truth is not in him. Let me pause for a second here. We've taught on this before, but when the Bible talks about sin, there are two main classes of sin. Often referred to as sins of commission and sins of omission. Sins of commission are things we've actually done. 
bad stuff, lied, killed, committed adultery. They're, they're acts of transgression. And maybe you're thinking, well, I didn't do any of those things. I'm okay. Uh-uh-uh, not so fast. James says, if you know what to do, if you know what you're supposed to do, and you don't do it, it's still sin. Hmm. It gets worse. Romans 14 says, whatever is not of faith is sin. Whenever you and I deviate from the path of walking by faith and not by sight, we're heading into sin. Just not trusting God is sin. So, that's why John said, look, if anybody claims to be without sin, you're deceived. We have so many things in our lives that we still need to repent for and run to God for cleansing. 1 John 2, 5. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Here comes another one, verse 6. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Whew. Ooh. How many are doing that 100%? My hand's not up. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Lord have mercy. He feared God. He didn't want even a scratch between him and God. He wanted to walk in continual fellowship and obedience with his Father. Verse 7, Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Here comes another one. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. Sometimes I read these verses to people who are having problems in their relationships with people. And sometimes even in marriages, I'll have a wife or a husband tell me to my face, I hate him. I hate her. Hmm. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother. That's not my brother, that's my husband. Oh, so I'm, I'm okay hating my husband because he's not a brother. Something seems to be wrong with that logic. I once heard a pastor counseling a couple. They were having troubles. And he pleaded with both of them because both of them were saying they hated the other one. He said, look, just love each other. That's what the Bible commands us. We're supposed to love one another. Can't do that. I hate him. Well, if you can't love him as your husband or love him as your wife, at least love them as a brother or a sister. No, I can't do that either. And finally, he read them Matthew 5. He says, well, you're still supposed to love your enemies. Love them as an enemy then. But you're still supposed to love them. We make all these little excuses. Well, but, you know, he did this, so I'm justified in hating him. No, you're not. You're walking in darkness. 
Verse 10, whoever loves his brother lives in the light and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever, what's whoever mean? Raise your hand if you're a whoever. I'm a whoever. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. Oh, but they have visions and dreams, deep, heavy revelations. My friends, it's deception. You can't walk in hatred and be having dreams and visions and revelations from God. Get the first thing right. Verse 15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone... What's anyone mean? Oh God. This one's going to be tough. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. What's up with this love affair between the church and the world? Oh, we want to dress like the world, sing like the world, do everything the world's doing. We want to impress the world. We want to get all the latest stuff that the world is trying to sell us. Stop it! Stop loving the world. It's going to pass away, he says. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. I like that. Boasting of what he has and does. What are you boasting about? It's usually one of those two things. Well, I have this. Or I do this. Wonderful. John says it's all going to pass away. The world and its desires pass away. But the man who does the will of God lives forever. Say with me, I'm almost done here, but I'm coming to a very, very important section now. In 1 John 3. Please listen to this very carefully. 1 John 3, starting with verse 4. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that He appeared so that He might take away our sins. And in Him is no sin. No one. What's no one mean? It means no one. No one who lives in Him keeps on sinning. Now, let me explain something here. That doesn't mean... We all sin. We all have an occasional slip up or a bad judgment or we uh, do something that's not pleasing to God. That's not what John is talking about here. He's talking about you're just continuing in sin. It's a regular practice. You're just going on in that same old sin. No one who lives in Him will do that. No one who continues to sin has either seen Him or known Him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous. Oh, there's another nice definition, Pastor. What's righteous mean? You do right. We can make it all complicated. Well, you know, imputed, da-da-da-da-da. No. You do right, you're righteous. You do wrong, you're unrighteous. He who does... Oh, I better not read this. We should play church now, right? He who does what is sinful is of the devil. 
Man, John's having a bad day here. That's not loving. That's not nice. Or is it? He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. What's the devil's work? It's sin. To destroy sin in your life and mine. And that's what the new birth is all about. Verse 9. No one. What's no one? No one who is born of God will continue to sin. Because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. I don't care if you've been baptized in water. I don't care if you've been in the church for 50 years. If you're still going on in a life of sin, something's wrong. And in the love of Christ, I'm pleading with you, go to God, ask Him to help you, show you what's really happening in your life. But stop making excuses. Stop blaming other people for what you're doing. And I've worked with drug addicts, I've worked with alcoholics, I've worked with people with other kinds of addictions. They can try to blame it on the addiction or other people. You know what? After all is said and done, God is going to say, you drunkard, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, it was my uncle's fault or my dad's fault or my mom's fault. No, it's your decision. You make your decision and God will help you to break that addiction off your life. But stop making excuses. No one who is born of God continues in that old life. And if you went into the water baptism tank, a dry sinner, and you came out a wet sinner, and nothing else has really changed in your life, you probably weren't born again. Because born of God is radical. It's radical. Alright, now, I'm going to close this up. Back to the verse we started with in Revelation 3, verses 1 to 6. Revelation 3, 1 to 6. I apologize for going long, but this needs to be said. To the angel of the church, by the way, these are not angels with wings. The word angel is simply a messenger. And depending on the context, the word is even used to refer to John the Baptist, a messenger. These are not winged angels. These are the servants of God that God was sending to these churches as, excuse me, as messengers. To the angel of the church in Sardis write. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. 
They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I hope you've sensed my spirit today. There's an urgency about what I'm sharing with you. And my greatest fear is that some might listen to this message, close up the Bible, head on home, watch the football game, and forget about everything that was said. Same old, same old. Something's got to change. Or there will be changes. Something has to change. And as one of the messengers to this church, I take this very personally. And I take responsibility. And I've been going before the Lord a lot in these last three months or more and saying, Lord, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry we've not been able to bring this church to a higher level than what we have. I'm sorry. I take responsibility. I'm not blaming anybody else. I take the responsibility. We should have come much, much further by now. And as I mentioned in Hebrews 5, some of you by now should be up here teaching, preaching. Some of you should be starting churches or small home groups in your homes and teaching young people and winning your community to the Lord. But we're not there. I take responsibility for that. And if you're one of the few, you have a few people who have not soiled their clothes. And basically, a lot of the things Jesus was saying didn't apply to them. If you're one of those, God bless you. You know who you are. You're blessed and you can have a great confidence as we face tomorrow and we face the very soon coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll have great confidence as you stand before Him. Others, if you have ears to hear what we're saying here today, and you realize there are some things in your life that need to change, maybe you're not really demonstrating the fruits of repentance, the fruits of a true born-again, spirit-baptized child of God, then my advice to you is run to God. Run to God. Get serious with God. Do some serious business with God this week. Set some days aside, if you can, to fast, to pray. Get into the Word of God. Call upon the Lord. Ask Him to give you a new spirit of repentance to hate sin and to stop sinning and to begin to run after the things of God. God is waiting for us, but His patience, as we saw in the Thyatira church, it does have a limit. He gave that woman a space of time to repent, but he said, she's not willing. Now we're going to go to a different strategy. I don't want to wait for that day. <laughs> if God is telling me, Wayne, I've given you a little bit more time to straighten out some things in your life. If you don't fix them, look out. We saw in some of these passages in 1 John, when we repent, when we confess our sins, when we come to God sincerely, He's there with His arms outstretched to forgive us, to cleanse us, to purify us. 
How foolish of us to cut ourselves off from the mercy, the grace, the cleansing of God by living a lie, by living in darkness, by remaining in our old ways, in our old life. I am praying this verse every day, 2 Timothy 2. God, grant us repentance. Grant us repentance. Open our eyes, open our ears, circumcise our hearts so that we can hear what you're saying to the churches. Let's all stand. This is a very solemn meeting, and I I don't apologize for that. Very solemn. And I don't want to hurry here. I want to take a few moments just for you to quietly process whatever God spoke to you. And stop worrying about, boy, I hope Fonzie got that message, or I hope my wife heard that. Forget about all that. Focus on what you need to hear. What is God speaking to me? What is God speaking to you today? What do I need to do? What needs to change in my life? Father God, in the name of Jesus, we're at your mercy, Lord. We were born in sin, and the only hope for us is to be born again. Born of God. Invaded by your holy seed, the word of God. Changed. Radically changed from the inside out. New creations that hate sin. We hate darkness. We hate the devil. We hate the things that you hate. And we love righteousness. We love purity. We love your word. And God, if there are any hearing my voice today that still can't comprehend that, I pray, oh God, that you would open their eyes, open their ears, open their hearts, and save us. Lord, it seems that there's just a day of reckoning that is coming now. You said judgment must begin at the house of God. And I just sense your spirit crying out to all of us, the games are over. There's no more time to play around. We need to get very, very serious with you, O God, and do business with you. Father, I pray for each and every one here that they would understand the price that you already paid on Calvary, the sacrifice of your own Son to destroy every work of the devil. God, I don't want the devil anywhere around my life. I don't want anything in my life that would attract him. If there's anything in me that is of the devil, root it out, cast it out, set me free. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters and others that are listening to this message. We give no place to the devil. We bind and rebuke every foul spirit, every false spirit, every power of darkness that would try to drag us back into sin, into the world, into darkness. We rebuke you. We bind you. We plead the blood of Jesus over every heart, every mind here today. God, I pray that your salvation would come powerfully upon each and every one of us. And let us know without any shadow of a doubt that I have been born again. I can no longer continue in sin. I can no longer enjoy my old life because I'm a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. 
God, as we look ahead to the future, we pray that you would lead us, you would guide us. You would give us wisdom and understanding to know what to do. We're looking to you for your direction. God, we want our lives to bring praise and honor and glory to you. And Lord, we don't want to be dead. We don't want to be asleep. We don't want to be lukewarm. We want to be on fire. We want to be alive. We want to be doing the things that you've called us to do. So God, help us. We're pleading with you today. Help us. Help each and every one of us today. We surrender. We trust. We hope. Our hope is in you. And we thank you, Lord God, that you know the end from the beginning and you will complete that work that you started in each and every one of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.